Sure, I'd love for you to skip forward. It'd be great. Extremely lonely. Okay, let's go ahead and get started this morning. Um, Eric, or not Eric, um, Chris is still handing out uh, handouts, so if you need one, you can take one. Um, and uh, we'll go ahead and get started this morning with a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Um, Father, we thank you for um, your kindness to us, the way that you love us patiently and faithfully. Um, in your gracious love, you've given us um, this day, this Lord's Day, to um, gather together to be with your people, um, to be nourished by your spirit. Uh, Father, we ask this morning as we prepare for worship that you would give us wisdom as we continue to study your law, especially the summary that you've given to us of it in the Ten Commandments. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. Um, so we are the second week now of a new class where we are looking at a, a different genre of God's word. We've looked at um, last spring, an epistle, did a close study of the epistle of James, and, and today we are beginning a new study, um, or this week, this, this series, we're beginning a new study of God's Word, which is uh, focused on God's law, um, God's law. And so uh, we're looking at the Ten Commandments. Last week we did an introduction to the law of God and just sort of some context for how we understand it and study it together. And today um, we're going to be jumping right into the text of the Ten Commandments. And we've got a lot to cover today, so I'm just going to jump right in. We're just going to go for it. So on your handout, you can see I've printed out the um, ESV translation of the first commandment, which includes a prologue, of course. And there's some, uh, you know, discussion among scholars. Is this prologue where the Lord identifies himself and his people? Is it a prologue to the entire uh, Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, or is it merely uh, connected um, to the first word, um, the first commandment, as a context for it. And I would say, you know, why not both? Like, I think it can be both, and I, that's essentially how I take this. We're going to talk about it, especially paired today with that first commandment, but certainly I think the prologue, so to speak, gives a context for the entirety of the Ten Commandments as a whole, and we should read it that way. So here is that first commandment. I am the Lord, or as you know, when it's all caps in your Old Testament, it is a transliteration of the word Yahweh, the personal name. So, I am Yahweh, Yahweh your God, the God that, the name that God revealed to Moses, the name that he used in context um, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Shall have no other gods before me. Literally, in the Hebrew, you shall have no other gods before my face. In my presence is the idea. There shall be no other gods before me or in my presence. So a few things just to talk about in terms of this prologue, so to speak, this section where um, the Lord defines himself and his people. He says, I am Yahweh your God, 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Why is this prologue important? Uh, First, um, it defines the parties involved in this conversation. Remember, we talked last week about how um, the the yous are singular um, in the Ten Commandments. And so the the Ten Commandments are really um, a father speaking to his son. Remember that um, when Moses goes to Pharaoh, he says that Yahweh is calling Israel, his son, out of slavery to come worship him. Um, This is father-son talk. This is wisdom Um, that is being imparted from a father to a son um, here at Sinai. And so the the two parties are being now identified. Um, We learn about, in this prologue, God's identity and our own identity. Um, He is Yahweh, he says. I am Yahweh. That's where he begins. It echoes, of course, um, God's revelation of himself in Exodus 3. He is not only Yahweh, he is the God of those whom he brought out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Um, He defines himself um, in relationship to his actions in the world. I think this is a really fascinating thing that that he is not simply content to be Yahweh your God. He is Yahweh your God, the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Um, This is... um, Uh, Calvin says this, he says, God adorns his divinity with sure titles and so fences us in that we may not rashly contrive for ourselves some new God. This is a fascinating thing to think about, that God, when he identifies himself, does not very rarely just simply refers to himself as God in some generic sense. He's always the God who does certain things, the God who created heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, the God who called Israel out of slavery, um, the God who uh, raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That is how he defines himself in Romans 8, according um, to Paul. Um, the God is always connected um, to the revelation of himself in history through his, his actions, through his deeds, the things that he is up to. So I think that's really important for us to just to be aware of and to think about um, it, and even to think about how we talk about God ourselves. Uh, sometimes, um, you know, I, th- I think it's good for us to, to, to think about, you know, we don't just address God in our prayers, right? We address the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, we address the God who created heaven and earth. We gr- address our Father, as Jesus um, tells us. And so I think it's just very important for us to think about that. There's a lot of talk in our culture about, you know, God. What is, who is God? What is God? those kinds of things. And it's always important to remember that God always reveals himself in a covenantal context um, to his people in the context of his actions on their behalf. So if God is the God of those whom he brought out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery, then we are the ones whose God is Yahweh. He's also defining the identity of his people. We are the ones who have been brought out by Yahweh from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. That is our fundamental identity, that is the identity that the Lord is giving here to his people that he's gathering and speaking to. Uh, The prologue also shows us, of course, that God's law is set in a context of his steadfast love and mercy. Uh, We talked about this last week, um, this this phrase, Exodus comes before Sinai, right? Sinai doesn't come before Exodus, right? The Lord doesn't show up while Israel's in slavery and say, here is the law that I have for you. Um, Now um, I will see how you keep this law, 
and we will see what happens, right? No, he goes and delivers them when they were in sin, when they were in idolatry, um, when they were even, it seems, as according to Joshua, at the end of Joshua, worshiping false gods in Egypt, and he goes and he delivers them from their bondage and their slavery, not only to Pharaoh, but their bondage and slavery to false worship and, and sin, and he delivers them out of that, and once he has delivered them, then he gives them the law. Um, obeying God's law, we see, is simply living out what he has made us to be. We are those who have been brought by Yahweh out of the house of slavery. So God's law forms our response and our, our living connection to his salvific redemptive acts. Um, finally, the, the, the prologue defines God's authority over us. He says to us, I am Yahweh, your God, right? He says it as a declarative statement. He doesn't invite Israel to make the, him their God. He just simply says, I am Yahweh, your God. You belong to me now, is, uh, the, uh, is the implication. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 1.13. He says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Right? This, and, uh, very intentionally, I think, echoing Exodus language there. Uh, Paul uses that language in Colossians. We've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. If we're now part of a kingdom, there's a king, right? We're put into a kingdom with the king that we are now subject to, the beloved son, Jesus Christ. And, and that's, that is what is happening here. And the Lord is saying, I've taken you out of the house of slavery, and I have made you subject now to myself. You're not just sort of taken out of the land of slavery, and now you just you know, do whatever you want. Um, you don't have any master. Um, you're your own master. No. Um, what the Lord is saying here is that I am now your master. Um, Isaac Watts, in a, a hymn that I love, um, Join All the Glorious Names, it's in our hymnal, we sing it regularly. The last verse, he sums up this idea uh, with this language. He says, My Savior and my Lord, my Conqueror and my King, thine is the power. Behold, I sit in willing bonds beneath thy feet. It's hymn uh, 301, I believe, if you want to look at it sometimes. It's a great hymn. And it's focusing on the work of Jesus, and it focuses on this idea that Jesus has made himself our king, that he has actually conquered us, right? He doesn't just invite us to believe in him and to, to think that he is, uh, you know, a, a great person and spiritual guide and all those things. No, he actually asserts his authority over us, and so now we sit in willing bonds beneath his feet. We're taken out of a false bondage to Egypt, um, and put into a, a bondage that brings freedom, a bondage that brings life um, in the way that we are mastered uh, by the Lord. As Calvin puts it this way, he says, we are captivated to embrace the lawgiver. I love the way that he puts that, um, that we are, we are made captives in some sense so that we would embrace the lawgiver. We're put under his authority. Any questions about any of that, the prologue? Stuff I've just mentioned before we jump into the text of the first commandment. Yeah, Kathina. Sure. Sure. Mm-hmm.
Yeah, that's a great point. So Kathina's saying that um, it's, it's fascinating how God doesn't just assert his sort of divine reality as something that we now need to submit to and ascribe to. But yeah, he defines himself in relationship to us um, and in re- relation to his redemptive love for us. And that's the context which we relate to him. That's right. Yeah, it's a very personal thing in a different way. James and Jeremy. Yeah, like he is sure. Receiving plague after plague after plague, and even the people are saying, "Stop! Like this is foolishness." Right. He um, could not submit, and but he is trying to be God by God's will. So absolutely, and 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 within the context of the religious nature of Egypt, he was considered a kind of God, right? right. Yeah. Absolutely. That's right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. The, the connection to Exodus and the plagues is absolutely the Lord revealing himself and defeating the false gods of Egypt, the, the powerless gods of Egypt in contrast to himself. And of course, that culminates in the, the Passover and then also in the destruction of Pharaoh and his armies at the Red Sea. Yeah, the Lord has has. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's those. That's the context for this statement about himself. Yeah, Jeremy. Yeah, what, what I'm familiar with is that there are some traditions who, can, who take the first and second commandment together. Um, does that make sense? Um, yeah, there are different ways. That, I mean, it's important to say that the... the the tradition that we're part of, which is basically the broad part Protestant tradition um, of numbering the commandments, and I believe actually Roman, well, I think Roman Catholics do it differently. Um, the Roman Catholics, I think, combine, and Lutherans combine the first two commandments together. So they end up with the ninth and tenth commandment um, that are basically the tenth commandment gets divided into two, essentially. So, yeah, it's, yeah, we're just, we're just doing, we're just doing the straightforward you know, classically Protestant way of understanding. But it, it, yes, there's, the Bible doesn't specifically say first commandment, you know, uh, semicolon, you know, thou shalt. So, so we, we have to sort of put in some kind of numbering. Yeah. That's okay. All right, so what does this first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, mean? Um, how can we, it seems like a very simple, straightforward, right? What is there to say about this, really? Um, I think there's a lot to say, actually, about this commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, no other gods before my face. Um, Martin Luther um, reflects on the first commandment in his catechism. He says, everything proceeds from the power of the first commandment. Right? The first commandment sets the context for all of God's law, all that he requires for us to do. And it means, 
according to Luther, that we must fear, love, and trust God above all things. Pretty simple, right? All you have to do is fear, love, and trust God above all things. Right? That is the rub, right? This is the rub um, of how difficult it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, as um, I think this commandment is sort of summarized in some ways elsewhere. Um, that that this, this, it, there's a totality um, to the first commandment, a comprehensiveness of it um, that is the complex, where it becomes complex and challenging. Um, Calvin puts it this way. He says, the purpose of this commandment is that the Lord wills alone to be preeminent among his people and to exercise complete authority over them. The Lord is not interested simply in partial authority, right? That we're, we're partially al- aligned in, in allegiance to him um, and also to other things. No, he wants everything. It's comprehensive, the authority that he demands. In forbidding us to have strange gods, he means that we are not to transfer to another what belongs to him. So this is sort of the negative way of thinking about this command, right? Positively, it means that we're supposed to, we must love, fear, and trust God above all things. Negatively, it means we must not um, give to any other person or God um, or thing, uh, anything that belongs to the true God, to Yahweh. Um, Calvin defines what we owe God as adoration, trust, invocation, which is another way of saying like dependence, right? Prayer, that kind of thing, invoking God, and thanksgiving, um, that those things all belong totally to God and to no one else. Calvin says, this means to contemplate, fear, and worship His majesty. This is what it means positively. To participate in God's blessings, to seek His help at all times, to recognize and by praises to celebrate the greatness of His works as the only goal of the activities of this life. So the, the first commandment is a, you know, it, it can be simple and just think, well, you know, this is about uh, worshiping other gods. You know, I don't have a little shrine to, uh, you know, my ancestors in my basement or, um, well, you don't have basements or, you know, in your closet, um, whatever it might be, right? So this is, so first commandment, don't have any other gods before me, check, right? I've been doing that my whole life. Um, have never, you know, bowed down and worshipped another god. Um, but what, what we see here, of course, is that this command is far more comprehensive, right? Far more um, uh, total in its, what it's asking than simply uh, an explicit sort of worshipping of another god. Now, it's important to say that Israel would struggle explicitly with idolatry, right? With, with actually bowing down to um, Baal or um, to other gods, the gods of the land in which they would be, go- they would be taken by the Lord, right? the gods of the Canaanites. And idolatry is, of course, the fundamental um, sin of Israel in many ways um, that leads her into exile um, and all those things that take place. Um, but we need to be very careful, I think, in how we think about this first commandment and realize that what it is going after is ultimately um, certainly our actions and our behaviors um, but also our heart, right? The Lord is concerned about our heart. Jesus did not introduce in his um, uh, teaching in the, in the New Testament, you know, okay, now God is concerned about the heart, everybody. Big news, right? Um, now God cares about all before in the Old Testament it was just whatever ritual actions, outward behavior. Now it's the heart. 
That's not, that's not true. If you read Deuteronomy, it's all about the heart. You know, Moses is constantly talking about how the hearts of the people need to be circumcised and made soft in order for them to keep God's law. So this, this commandment was always about the heart and, in a deep way, and it's about the heart now for us. Yes, sir. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the most immediate context is you're about to build the tabernacle. Um, that happens at the end of Exodus. Don't bring any other gods into, um, into my presence, into the worship that you owe me, the total, you know, the, the total kind of submission and obedience that you owe me. There are. Yeah, Manasseh does that, I believe. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but we would, we would not want to define face just in a real minimalistic way either, just that sort of tabernacle. The, the point is before God's presence, right? Um, into, God has redeemed us for himself. Don't bring other gods into God's presence where he has brought you. Does that make sense? Don't introduce other allegiances um, into um, the one, the presence of the one who has has captured your whole allegiance. The Heidelberg Catechism defines this commandment this way. He's, it says, and the Heidelberg Catechism is another Protestant Reformation document. Um, it's written before the Westminster Standards, but it's a wonderful uh, catechism. It says, this means that on peril of my soul's salvation, on peril of my soul's salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, sorcery, enchantments, invocation of saints or other creatures, and that I rightly acknowledge the only true God, trust in Him alone, with all humility and patience, expect all good from Him only, and love, fear, and honor Him with my whole heart, so as rather to renounce all creatures than to do the least thing against His will." Um, I, I think the, the Heidelberg puts it very well there, what the first commandment really requires from us. Certainly, it requires that we flee explicit idolatry, explicit sorcery, enchantments, um, you know, uh, worshiping, praying to saints, those kinds of things. Um, that, but it requires much more than that in a, in, a, in a positive sense, that we acknowledge the only true God, we trust in Him alone, um, that we give Him our whole hearts, so to speak. The Westminster Larger Catechism, um, uh, which is, you know, just such a remarkable exposition of the Ten Commandments, I want to spend some time now just sort of looking at that. I think it really unpacks for us um, the, the totality um, of this commandment. So, Larger Catechism 104, you got it printed there. It says, what, is, what are the duties required in the First Commandment? So, what are the, the positive things that the First Commandment requires when it says, you shall have no other gods before me. Here's what it says. The duties required in the first commandment are the knowing and acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God, right? Not only that he is, in some abstract sense, the only true God, but to make him our God, to submit to him personally, to worship and glorify him accordingly by thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, 
honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, fearing of Him, believing Him, trusting, hoping, delighting, delighting in God. That is one of the ways you, you fulfill the first commandment. Rejoicing in Him, um, being joyful um, because of His presence, being zealous for Him, calling upon Him, giving all praise and thanks, and yielding all obedience and submission to Him with the whole man, being careful in all things to please Him, and sorrowful when in anything He is offended, and walking humbly with Him. What do y'all think about that? Any thoughts? It's weighty. It is weighty. I agree. It's challenging, is that what you said? Didn't leave much out. Yeah, didn't leave much out. Yeah, yes, yes. Um, yeah, the Westminster Larger Catechism is not often accused of being um, overly concise or, or uh, you know, not saying enough in terms of the, the, the things that it lists. And if you think that was comprehensive, we're about to read a much longer one. Look on the back page. Okay, so if that is what is required by the first commandment, then what is prohibited? What is forbidden by the first commandment? Um, and I think this is, a, this is a remarkable sort of statement. I think it's something to meditate on. I think the larger catechism is actually really helpful um, to really think through and consider carefully. There's no way we can do this in the next 20 minutes with any comprehensiveness. Um, but it's something to, you know, to take home, um, to, to look up, to really, you know, spend some devotional time studying and thinking through, okay, why does the first commandment, why did the writers of larger catechism say these things? What's the connection? How do I, how am I tempted to do that? This is the kind of work that God's law requires of us, I think. Question 105, what are the sins forbidden in the first commandment? The sins forbidden in the first commandment are atheism, in denying or not having a God, idolatry, in having or worshiping more gods than one, or any with or instead of the true God, the not having or avouching him for God and our God, the omission or neglect of anything due to him required in his commandment, ignorance, forgetfulness, misapprehensions, false opinions, unworthy and wicked thoughts of him. I think it's fascinating the way this commandment is, it's, you know, they're, they're pressing into things that we would not necessarily anticipate, right? Ignorance of God and his love and his majesty and his power and his goodness is a violation of the first commandment. Forgetting it misapprehensions, right? Misunderstanding it, having a false opinion about it, unworthy and wicked thoughts of him. Who was thought, right? I mean, this is something that people struggle with, right? We say, God, how could you have done this, right? And, and certainly our heart matters when we say that kind of thing, but there's certainly a way in which that can be a wicked, rebellious thought against God. And the, the writer of the first command, or the writer of the catechism says, that's actually a violation of the first commandment. Bold and curious, searching into his secrets. So trying to sort of get above the line, right, and understand um, God's, um, God's secrets. We're going to start opening him 
is immortal, invisible, God only wise, right? It emphasizes God's um, uh, transcendence over us. And so, you know, trying to, trying to somehow dive into that transcendence um, is a violation of this first commandment. All profaneness, hatred of God, self-love, self-seeking, and all other inordinate and immoderate setting of our mind, will, or affections upon other things. That's a hard one, right? This is basically talking about disordered loves, right? It's not saying you can't love other things besides God, but you have to love them in ways that are fitting, right? Ways that are ordered, uh, ways that are rightly moderate. Um, they are, if you love inordinately, or if you love immoderately, um, or you trust something inordinately or immoderately, um, then this is a violation of the first commandment, having another God. We could think about all the things that could be, right? Money, success, power, um, sex, um, you know, pleasure, whatever it might be. I mean, fill in the blank, right? There's so many things that can fill um, that in our lives. Um, and, and the point is that that is actually a violation of the first commandment. Um, and taking them off from him in whole or in part, vain credulity, unbelief, heresy, misbelief, distrust, despair, encourageableness, and insensibleness under judgments. I think this is a fascinating thing um, that we, should, we really need to wrestle with as modern people. Usually with modern people, we, when someone is, is failing to believe in God's promises and his goodness, um, we have a lot of empathy for that person. We want to say, you know, we uh, identify with that. It's hard sometimes to trust God, et cetera. And that, that's not saying we shouldn't say those things. We should also recognize that not trusting the goodness of God is a sin. It's a sin against God. That's what it is, because he is absolutely good and absolutely loving. And there is no reason, um, you know, that we can, there's no justifiable reason for not trusting in the goodness and love of God at all times. And that's something I think we have to wrestle with, that there is a way in which we can doubt or have lack of belief um, that is actually sinful, where we can, we can despair, right? We can despair about our lives in ways that are sinful before God. Um, incorrigibleness, um, that means basically lack of repentance, and sensibleness under judgments, hardness of heart, pride, presumption, carnal security, right? Trusting in your bank account, trusting in your whatever, um, your accomplishments. Tempting of God, using unlawful means and trusting in lawful means carnal delights and joys, corrupt, blind, and indiscreet zeal, lukewarmness, lukewarmness before the Lord is a sin. Um, certainly that's repeated, of course, in Revelation. Lukewarmness and deadness in the things of God. Right? Having a deadened heart, right? having a coldness towards God is actually a violation of the first commandment estranging ourselves and apostatizing from God, praying and giving any or giving any religious worship to saints, angels, or any other creatures, all compacts and consulting with the devil and hearkening to his suggestions, 
making men the lords of our faith and our conscience, right? And this is something that Christians do sometimes, right? Instead of submitting to the word of God, we look for men who will tell us, you know, with, with false authority um, uh, what that word means in particular ways and make them the lords of our faith and conscience. Sliding and despising God and his commands, resisting and grieving of his spirit, discontent or discontentment and impatience at his dispensations, at his works, right? Charging him foolishly for the evils he inflicts on us. That one gets to the heart, I think. Charging God foolishly for the evils that he inflicts upon us. And ascribing the praise of any good we either are, have, or can do to fortune, idols, ourselves, or any other creature. That's pretty comprehensive, I think. Any thoughts about that? The sins that are forbidden in the first commandment according to the writers of the Westminster Standards? Yes, ma'am. Yes, that's a good question. I don't really have a lot of insight. Um, I'm sure that they debated about it for a long time, and there, were, there was some rationale, but I don't know that it's written down for us or you know, recorded. Um, that's, a great, that's a great question, though. It is really fascinating to think about how do they not only name all these things, but put them in the, the format that they do and line them up like that. Yeah, Jeremy. Yeah, that's a question. I was wrestling with that last night. That one challenge with the larger catechism, there's not a lot of like commentaries on it because it's so long and comprehensive. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure if they mean that in a, like a spiritual sense, um, unlawful means of, of, you know, growing spiritually, that kind of thing, or if it's meant in some other sense or trusting in lawful means um, and rather than God himself. That's my best guess as to what it means. Um, but I, I couldn't, I can't be absolutely sure. Yeah, I mean, that's the challenge, you know, we have this document that's now, you know, almost 400 years old, and so you have to sort of do cultural exegesis, basically, and even to understand, even though it's written in English, the culture are, is so different. And, like, some of them are clearly kind of, like, indirectly, like, Roman Catholicism. Some of them are, like, aimed at that. Mm-hmm. Like, that could be it, but I just have no idea what yeah, it's hard. It's hard to know exactly what the what what is meant by some of these things. Yes, ma'am, Wendy. I wouldn't say that this is something that the English community sort of prioritizes or what is worse, what is you know what mm-hmm. you get away with. I think the whole thing is saying it's a discernment of who God is and knowing who we are in Him and what He expects of us. Mm-hmm. So these things sort of. Yes. And in everything yes. before it, whether it's my money or it's how I'm thinking about God, it's not necessarily saying I do this or I don't do that or it's worse in this area. Right. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. It is. It's meant to be a, a diagnostic kind of, it's a way for us to think about our own obedience of God's law. Um, Eric and then Matt. 
James. Sure. You know, injustice or, you know, and it, you know, when I see statements like this, it almost feels like if you're on the safe side, we should just kind of be stoic. Well, I appreciate that. That's an honest question, Eric. So Eric's saying how, you know, you read the Psalms, there's a lot of honesty in the Psalms about God's, um, you know, frustration with one's present circumstances, um, those kinds of things. Yeah, I think, I think this is one of the ways that the Psalms are helpful for us, Eric. Um, uh, they keep us from stoicism. They keep us from saying as little as possible to God uh, out of fear of offending him or, or saying the wrong thing. Um, I think the Psalms are actually very helpful because they, we know that they're approved ways of speaking to God because the Lord has inspired them. Um, and so they actually give us language that we can use to God, to speak to God. Um, I think, I think that we do have to be honest, like we should, should we exercise probably more care than usually we do in speaking to our heavenly father, um, especially when we're frustrated or, um, you know, confused about his work in our lives? We probably should. I mean, probably most of us, I would guess, um, you know, struggle like the, the spirit of our age, right, is, is not to emphasize God's transcendence, um, and his holiness and his majesty, but to emphasize his eminence and his, you know, his incarnation and his, um, uh, his being, you know, near us and, and his empathy for us, those kinds of things. And so I do think that we should be honest about that as Christians in a modern age and say, um, we, we probably should be careful, more careful, most of us, than we are when we speak to God. We should not speak to God in a, in a deeply casual way in a way that, that is thoughtless um, because of his majesty, because of his, um, his authority and power. And I think the Psalms give us language to, to, to not be Stoics, to truly speak to God, but also to exercise care in the way that we speak to him. Um, Matt, and then James. So for me, this, when we got to like the, the ignorance part, right? Yeah. Yeah. Even in our ignorance. Right. No. Yeah, you don't even know what you don't know. Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> right. we're held to account for the things that <laughs> we fall short of the law for the things that we don't even understand about the law or understand about God. Sure. And so, I don't know, it kind of seems, <laughs> kind of seems to me a little bit like it points you automatically back to Jesus as opposed to why, how, yeah, what am I missing? I, I don't know, does that make any sense? Totally, totally makes sense. Yeah, I, I think this is one of the purposes of the law. The law is given to us. Like, if any of us read that list of things and be like, yeah, that's not so bad, right? You know? Um, then, then I think you're missing part of what the law is supposed to do, um, which is to convict us of our inadequacy and our sin and our need for Christ and to cast ourselves upon him and to say, I mean, it is really even just fascinating to think about this this catechism question in a Christological way, by which I mean to meditate on it by thinking, okay, how did Jesus do all these things? Because he did, we believe. He actually kept the first commandment in its totality. Um, 
and that's something for us, you know, that would be an interesting exercise to do with this, to think about in the Gospels and the record we have of Jesus' life. How did he um, not despair? How did he not show encouragableness? How did he not have presumption or carnal security? Um, you know, all these sort of different things. How was he not lukewarm? Um, I think that's a fascinating way to think about this, even as it's a diagnostic for our own sin. It reveals to us the sufficiency of Christ and God's love for us and his grace and all those things. Yeah, James. As the way this um, catechism strikes me is as an excellent example of scriptural meditation. Mm-hmm. It takes, it's exactly what it is. It takes it from two angles. What does it forbid? What does it command? And then just unpacks those at length and um, in a very meditative yeah. That's exactly right. So James is saying this is an example of scriptural meditation, and that is what the catechism is. It is a meditation, a lengthy meditation in the scriptures um, by learned men, by godly men, by men, men, I mean, men who can list all these sins because they were familiar with them, I imagine, you know? Um, they knew what it was to be sinners um, themselves. Um, and if, if you just Google Westminster Larger Catechism with scripture proofs, you can... That's another way to do this, right? These, these catechisms all are, are keyed with, like there's probably like 35 scripture proofs for this one answer to this question. Um, and so that's one way you could do it. You could go clause by clause and look up the scripture proof and see, oh, this is what they meant by that. This is the place in God's word where they found this aspect of the first commandment. Um, does that make sense? So the, the writers of the Westminster Standards not only wrote the words, they also went back and added little footnotes that says, okay, you know, this is found in Romans 3, 16, or whatever, you know, I'm just making that up. But whatever it is, all the way through. So there are literally thousands of, of footnotes throughout the document. Yeah, Dan, we're about to wrap up here. Um, of course, in the Exodus and the original Ten Commandments, as they were given to Moses, and what the rabbis did was Sure. But then when Jesus talks about the big commandments in the New Testament, mm-hmm. he said, Thou shalt love thy God, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Mm-hmm. What's your take on that? Is he cheapening the, yeah. the law, or is he. What, what? Yeah, good question. Yeah, I don't think that Jesus is cheapening the law. I think he's actually accentuating it. He's actually um, helping where, where there has been misunderstanding of the full implications of the law, the way that it goes to the heart. And I think that certainly in the history of Israel, some of that had been lost. I think it was intended and was, it was present in the giving of the law uh, through Moses. But part of the apostasy and hardness of heart of Israel was to uh, make God's law something that was purely external in many ways and not about the heart. And so certainly part of what Jesus is doing is, is reminding us, so this is not just about the sort of quote-unquote bare letter of the law, but about loving God and loving our neighbor, which is itself a, a you know, that is a um, expansion, I think, um, or a, a full unfolding um, of the law that I would argue was present in the Old Testament, but had been forgotten, had been, had been perverted in some ways um, by the religious leadership of Israel. So I, I think I would, I would describe what Jesus is doing as a prophet in, the, in the, the Gospels is is going back and revealing the heart of the law that was always there, but the blindness of 
sinful human hearts obscured it um, for time. And, and Jesus comes back and sort of wipes off the, wipes off the grime and the dirt and says, oh, this is, this is actually what the law requires. Um, so that, that's how I would think about that, I think. All right, let's, um, let's stand and pray. We've, this is great, but we've got to wrap up because of time. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this first commandment. Help us to reflect upon it, Lord, meditate upon um, what it means for us to have no gods before you. Um, help us to be a people whose hearts do not wander uh, from you, Father, um, but because of your love and your grace and your faithfulness that we remain um, ever um, in communion with you through your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.